This morning, I invite you to open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin our reading at verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6. We are in the Sermon on the Mount together, and we're spending uh, a number of weeks working our way through this sermon. We are um, at the end of the second chapter of the three chapters of that sermon together. We are in the portion where we consider and reflect during the course of the whole of this section that we This kingdom that we have entered into by the grace of our Redeemer, the good news of this kingdom is that there is a Father who sees, and he sees what is in secret. This has been held out to us. He hears our prayer, and he knows our hearts. And this morning he's going to go at something that is quite difficult for our hearts to hear and to remember. And so the Lord is kind to remind us. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Heavenly Father, you see us and you know us. Our confession there is a confession that you are the eternal God. You are the God of heaven and earth. You are not distant, though you are higher. Lord, you see, you know. And these words rightly diagnose us. They see us. Thank you for your kindness in your sermon here to be preserved for us today to go out something that is so endemic of who we are and what is wrong with us. Thank you for calling us, not only calling us out, but calling us to something better, something enduring. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to work in us a new eye, a new way of seeing, a new heart, and a new treasure. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Much of what we've spent time on this morning has been on this. What is our desire? What is What does our eye desire to see? What is our vision of the world? Do we understand at the beginning of our service that our world really does have a redeemer? Do we understand that our world really is under judgment in our wandering? Do we understand that we have a hope in the Lord, that we can desire him and that we can be with him, that this could be our reward, that we could have a new vision? Do we understand these 
things. What Jesus does in this scripture this morning is he holds out for us two options. You can see it right at the front of the passage. He offers up the option, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, or in the next verse, to lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. Storing up treasures or not stirring up treasures. That's the two options, right? Or did you pay attention to the passage? Do you hear what Jesus says? He doesn't say that you're to desire something greatly, uh, that, that, that it's wrong to desire something greatly, that you ought to be uh, detached and only do what is right and good because you know it's right and good, not because you desire anything about it or because there is any benefit to you for doing what is right and good or walking in the way that is true, but you're just supposed to do it because that's what I said so. No, that's not, it's not a contrast between treasuring things and not treasuring things. The Lord knows we're going to treasure something. And then he does something very kind. He calls us to a greater treasure. The options that are presented is one of warning against storing up treasure on earth. And the other is encouragement, instruction, and command to store up treasures in heaven. So let's consider first treasures on earth. We're told in the passage again, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And what does it say? Let's say the problem is with that. Well, that's where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I love the realistic view of the world that we live in that Jesus has. He's like, look, y'all can do it. You're not going to have it long. It's pretty clear. He goes right at it. These things refer to that which is temporary and that which is corruptible. The things of the earth, things, you know, the things like that moth can get at. It destroys the garment that the culture of the New Testament were in the culture of the New Testament. The garments were integral to a person's personal possessions. It was among their prized possessions. Some of their most expensive possessions would have been the garments that protected them. Their clothing, a significant portion of a person's wealth was literally wrapped up in their clothing. And he says, moth is going to get it. It's going to get your possession. And you know how that works. Rust, the word can be translated literally worm. The reference is clearly to decay, probably the decay that would corrupt a person's storage bins or the food that it Contains One might attempt to amass wealth and gain security in this world, but Jesus says decay is going to come, and it's going to destroy your treasure, your storehouse, your safety net might get destroyed. Here's, I am going to do my best this morning to stay in the text. I'm going to go with the examples that Jesus gives. I'm not going to step aside and tell a lot of stories and illustrations, but I hope that something happens as you're listening, and as the Spirit works in your heart, that you begin to hear things. Is there anything that we might store up and, and try to treasure in this world as a security and a possession for our future that might get eaten up apart from our will? Anything like maybe, I don't know, IRAs or the equity that we have in our homes? Perhaps. I hope that these things come to your mind as we work our way 
through the passage. The thieves, the thieves are, you have the sure food and clothing. We know these things go bad. They wear out. They get eaten up. They can rust away. But what about currency? What about the world's more precious possessions? Well, they can last a little longer, but even these are susceptible to thieves. Oh, they'll still be there. It's just somebody else is going to have them. That's all. I think of today's most recent iPhone releases. They're pretty tough. It's, they're hard to break. The glass on them, you drop them, and they're kind of surviving a lot of those tests. But they also released, alongside the iPhone, a new Apple Care. It's called Apple Care Plus. It costs a little more, but you know what it includes? Theft protection. When you finally get something good, something that'll last, someone's going to come and they're going to want it more than even you do. And so we have moth and we have rust and we have thieves. Moth and rust and breakage and thieves will destroy. We have a world with its treasures are corruptible, the treasures of the world. But that's not where Jesus leaves us. He doesn't say, yeah, it's kind of a bummer, isn't it? Yeah, to make sure you're detached, make sure you live a life with no desires, because ultimately you're just going to get burned. That's not what he says. If you keep reading the passage, it says in verse 20, it's part of the same sentence. There's a comma and a continuation. In other words, this is actually where he's going. This is his point. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Love that. The instruction, the command of the passage is to lay up treasures. Jesus isn't warning us against desire. He is heightening our desire. We are right to desire treasure, but we must immediately see that this treasure is necessarily of a different sort about which Jesus speaks. It's heavenly treasure. It isn't clothing or food or currencies. These things are are not valuables of the kingdom. Some currency isn't even necessary for the kingdom. It's a sort of treasure that does not decay. What kind of treasure is that? One of the things that I find interesting in the passage is to note that it's not simply a caution to lay up or an instruction to lay up treasure for a future kingdom. It doesn't say lay up treasure for the future, for eternity, for someday. But it says rather lay up treasure in heaven. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is the continued announcement of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And the announcement is the kingdom has come. And so the way of the king is present, and the king's treasure is present to obtain. We can lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven today. Therefore, invest, lay up treasure, lay up the treasure of the king's things by treasuring the king's way. I'm going to say that again, because I think it's really the point of the passage. Let's hear it. Invest or lay up or treasure the king's things by treasuring the king's way that is being held out for us in the whole of the sermon. One of the things that is true of the king's way, and this is good news, friends. 
This is good news for you and I who know what it is to live in this world. Know what moth and rust and broken and stolen things look like and feel like for us who have treasured them. It's good news to hear that the kingdom way, the heaven way, is a no corruption way. No moth, no rust, no thieves. We would do well to search in the scriptures for the things that are not touched by those corruptions. What do the scriptures teach us before we think, well, what's something I really, really want here? Well, I really, really want a nice new TV or a really nice new craft set or a really sweet car or house. Well, I can't have it here because here it's just going to get destroyed. So maybe I can get a sweet mansion in heaven. Is that, is that what this passage is saying? Want the, want the things on earth that are destroyed? Don't want those. Just want the same thing in the kingdom? Or could we search the scriptures for the things that the scriptures hold out as themselves incorruptible? The heavenly things. Well, what are they? I think very quickly of the fruit of the Spirit. A character that endures and is the gift, the treasure of the saints. Or what about this? What about the making of disciples? The making of disciples. What if we began to view the making of disciples as gaining an eternal spiritual friendship? The making of a brother and sister that is literally stored up for us in the heavenly places for us to enjoy in fellowship in the presence of our God forever in the increase of the sight and worship is his glory and the fellowship of the saints. What if we began to view the making of disciples as a treasure, a storing up in heaven. What about this? What about the praise of the Lord? Unlike praise of sports teams that wins one game and then crushes you when they lose another, or self-congratulatory praise that leads to pride that will ultimately stumble. What about the praise of the Lord that has as its object the eternal glory of our Father in heaven that will remain forever so that not only will our praise not decrease or be stolen from us, but it will increase for an eternity. It's literally an investment that grows into the kingdom of heaven forever. We ought to constantly ask ourselves, what may be done in this life that can store up eternal treasure. I'm quickly reminded of the poem by Charles Studd. Some of you have already thought of it. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We have a king, and he remembers, and he stores up, and he has a treasure, and we who seek it find it in our inheritance in him, Jesus says to lay up these things, that which is to the praise of the king and for the joy of all who participate in his kingdom. It is too small to try to think of worldly things and how we can keep them forever. Too small. 
Let's consider and search the scriptures for that which is enduring and satisfying and actually forever. That little section says, for where your treasure is, in verse 21, for your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus, in this teaching, in the midst of his proclamation of the way of the kingdom, is holding out one of his most persistent teachings. He returns to the subject constantly throughout the, his ministry. The focus is on the leveraging of our treasure is not a heart-neutral reality. How we handle the treasures of this world is not a heart-neutral reality. To buy into the idea that the way that we handle the treasures of this world don't really matter because we have salvation in heaven, so it doesn't really matter today, is a naturalistic, materialistic, consumption-laden worldview of the world that we live in. It's not the view of the Scriptures. He's rescuing us from that way that of viewing the world that will pass away. It's not heart-neutral. We cannot say that our view of the world and eternity is right, or that we love God at all if we simultaneously leverage our lives for the accumulation of the things of this world. You hear that? We can't do both. He's about to get there in very clear language. It's the definition of worldliness to prize or treasure or to accumulate the things of this world. Do you know what it does? It tells us what we love. What do you want? What do you desire? Well, it's easy to find out what a person desires. It's what they try to get. What do you want? What do you desire? Well, what have you leveraged your life for? What do you literally use up your hours, your thoughts, your treasures for? Worldly treasuring is not morally neutral. In fact, it's something that the Lord is actively opposed to. But before we begin to think of this teaching as a negative teaching, let's hear Jesus' kindness, his instruction. His instruction is to lay up treasures for yourselves. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's for you to come and to accumulate and to lay up and to store up treasure in heaven. But it's the treasure of the kingdom, not of this world. Now, what he does is he takes that teaching. It's been clear. It's sure. It's actually filled with hope and promise. And he gives us two further explanations in the next two sections. He continues with the explanation about the eye being a lamp. Look at verse 22 with me. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But... If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Jesus quickly explains that you and I have a vision problem. We who are so prone to make much of this world and so little of the things of the kingdom of heaven must not see the true nature and reality of the treasure of heaven. Listen, we, right now, this morning, who are distracted 
and treasure other things, must not think much, must not see much value in the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. Where's the problem? It's an eye problem. It's a vision problem. We don't see rightly. We don't see clearly. Because the the treasure of heaven, Jesus says, who has been there, who has stored up an inheritance for himself and for his church there, is telling us it's greater than any of the treasure of this world that you might be distracted by. What's wrong with your eyesight? You don't see clearly. This is a matter of the seeing and savoring of things. What are you looking for? Is the question. It's a matter, I think, of worldview. I think it's another word we could use to describe what Jesus is going at here. It's the I. It's the I that stands between you and what you perceive to be real. That's the image that Jesus is holding out for us. The I is, is a window, right? It's the pathway of our understanding of the world. The eye is a means of our perception. And out of this perception, we make decisions, you see. And so if we have a bad or evil or blind or darkened perception, we will make decisions that are blind and evil and darkened, you see. Out of the perception of the world around us, we store up treasures. The question is, do we store up treasures in the world or in heaven? What do we see and savor? If this world and the treasures of this world appear to our eye to be the most valuable, the most satisfying, we will store up treasures of the world. Can you argue with that? Or is that simply true? If heaven... And the treasures of the kingdom appear to our eye to be most valuable and satisfying. We will store up the treasures of heaven. I hear that and I think, man, it sounds so simple. But there's a war going on inside of me. It's a war that the scriptures speak to. And it's a war and a battle for a right and renewed vision of reality. Not just a vision of the world, a vision of all that is real. Spiritual sight to see that which is truly true. I think of John Piper. Some of you are familiar with him. Many of the youth are familiar with him as we have been walking through one of his teachings at the point. And and something that I think that probably youth have already noticed is John Piper must have the most consistent worldview, view of the world, of anyone I've ever heard. His worldview, no matter what it is that he's viewing, always has the sovereign God at the head of the universe. The first thing that is in his eye, every time he sees anything, is the sovereign glory of God. And over and over, with the glory of God capturing his vision, he has light and clarity and sees things for what they are, and it's piercing. John John Piper, he's smart. He's been educated. He's read books. But I'll tell you, the thing that makes him so compelling is something we all have access to. A light that is given light by a looking and perceiving 
the glory of God. The light of his eye and the light of our eye is the glory of God. Now, there's something fascinating that Jesus does here. He picks up on an image and a theme that is actually maintained throughout much of the scriptures. He speaks of a healthy eye. You can see it in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. A healthy eye is literally the word for healthy is single or unfolded or whole. All right. It actually calls to mind the idea of holiness or wholeness, a single-mindedness to the glory and righteousness of God. The eye's sight is undivided. To put it another way, the person is not cross-eyed. Rather, he sees clearly what is there in an undivided fashion. Again, the matter of worldview, eyesight, is not morally neutral. You're not free to see things however you decide to perceive them, as if perception happens on the inside. It doesn't. If you don't see rightly, what does the Scripture say? All that you have left to perceive with on the inside is what? Darkness. And how great is the darkness, he says. We don't see with our hearts. We perceive with our eyes that which is real. And it changes the vision of our hearts. Our eyesight is not morally neutral. Jesus is saying that the heavenly, healthy eyesight to see and savor that which is good and eternal is a moral good. And that moral good, having a right eyesight, will lead to a walking in moral goodness. Now, you'll see this, I think, I hope, more clearly with the next little bit of Jesus' teaching in verse 23. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness... That's all you had to perceive with is a misshapen, cross-eyed view of the world. How great is the darkness? Now, the beginning of that little section says this. If your eye is bad, we see most clearly when we look at the unhealthy eye that one of the things that Jesus uses here is Literally, the phrase is, the eye that is bad is literally an evil eye. Literally, this could be translated very easily. But if you have an evil eye, your whole body will be full of darkness. An evil eye. You see, not morally neutral. Evil. Now, the scriptures are filled with that reference. The scriptures are filled with the words, an evil eye. It's just that we're not used to that language or that metaphor. We're not sure what evil eye means. It's not something that carries over to English well. So the translators often translate it with the word begrudging or stingy. Okay, listen to these scriptures. We've got four of them to walk through. The first is the longest because I think it gives us a bit of the context for what Jesus is referring to when he speaks of the evil eye. Deuteronomy 15, 17, 7 through 11. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, he's giving this people of his land a way to live, a way to view the world, and a way to walk in his kingdom. 
You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother. You can see this is a matter of the heart already. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Now take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, heart issue, and you say the seventh year, the year of releases, near. So, you know, the sort of the society will take care of it. And then it says this, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, literally, and you have an evil eye toward your brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. It is a sin to have an evil eye or to be begrudging to your brother. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. I love this. It says, because for this, the Lord will bless you. Do you hear the note of treasure? You who walk not with an evil eye, not with a begrudging eye, but rather are generous to your brother that they might endure with you in the land and not have a reason to cry against you to the Lord, are blessed. Have some treasure or blessing. Here's three more. Proverbs 23, 6 and 7. Do not eat the bread of the man who is stingy. Or literally, do not eat the bread of the man who has an evil eye. Do not desire his delicacies. Who in this world has great treasure, has stored it up, and has offered you a little sum. And you think, oh, I would like to be like that guy. At least I can eat at his table. And your eye itself becomes evil with him. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating. You can see it in his eyes. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Because, why does he have a dark heart? Because he has an evil eye. He doesn't see the world for what it really is. You can hear his begrudging heart. Proverbs 28, 22, a stingy man or a man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. We have the teaching of Jesus right here in this proverb. Go ahead, evil-eyed man who treasures the things of this world and did not see that moth and rust and thieves will corrupt them all. The stingy man hastens after wealth but does not know that poverty will come upon him. It's no real treasure at all if he would have seen more clearly. Matthew 20, verse 15. It's in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And and the, the master has been generous, not stingy, not begrudging, but generous to all of those who have been employed that day. And they complain and they whine, especially those who came early in the day. And the master says this in Matthew 20. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge? Do you look with an evil eye on my generosity? Now, I love that one. Because it's not that they are begrudging their generosity. It's that their evil eye, their view of the world, doesn't see the grace of the master. You see, our evil eye not only makes us stingy, hoarders, 
in this world, not really seeing just how nasty of a hoarding mess we've made of ourselves and our own little kingdom. But it also robs us of the ability to see the generosity of our God. Let me be clearer. A begrudging, stingy, evil eye will look with disdain on the way of the king and his kingdom. It will begrudge his grace. Who has been more generous? Who has been more undivided in his vision than the king himself? And we will inevitably, if we don't have a right vision, we will begrudge his grace, refuse it, reject it, and see that we ourselves are corruptible. He says, your whole body will be full of darkness. The state of the begrudging heart indicates something is wrong with the view of the world. Our eye is to be an eye of faith. That's to be our vision, our vision, that which allows us to see rightly We who are ourselves broken, what allows us to see rightly is faith. We're to see the way that Jesus sees because we believe what Jesus says. This is important because it says my eyes of my own nature lie to me. My way of thinking and my heart is dark of my own nature. How in the world can I see rightly? How do I see with the eyes of faith? Well, I hear the master when he speaks, and I read his words, and he gives light to the eyes. We who believe the words of the master see rightly. We're like, but it looked like such a good treasure. I know, but your heart, your eyes, they're darkened. See with the eyes of faith. Trust my words. Seek the things of the kingdom. And we believe, we hear the word of the master and our eyes receive light. As Jesus put it elsewhere, the one who seeks the world may gain the world, but he's sure to lose his soul. Do we hear that and believe him? We sound, that sounds like it's true. He gives us one more instruction. We'll walk through this very quickly. Two masters. It's a very simple teaching. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he would be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's clear there are not a great deal of qualifications in it. We have love and hate. We have devoted and despised. Again, Jesus is making clear that our devotion to the treasures of this world is not a morally neutral problem. To understand this, we must recognize that you can't serve money's needs. Think about it. You cannot serve God and money. Well, what is it that money needs from you? How do you serve money? You can't serve money. What does it mean to serve? What's the word serve mean in this sort of context? John Piper is actually helpful here. He says, to serve money is to place yourself under the waterfall of money's blessings. To say, I'm going to walk in the way of money in the hopes that money would actually serve me. It's to place yourself in the way and the benefits, dare I say the beatitudes, of your chosen master. And all of a sudden, it makes sense. The way and the benefits. The way and the blessings. 
the way and the beatitudes of the master. Some of you remember at the beginning of chapter 5, there is a new master in town. And he's trying to give light to the eyes. And he describes a way. And he describes a blessing, a beatitude, a treasure for the people who would follow after him. It's the beatitudes in chapter 5. What does it look like to serve God rather than money? It's to place yourself under the waterfall of the blessings, the beatitudes of the beatitudes. This mercy makes sense. Poverty of spirit is what I bring, but a kingdom is what I receive. Peacemaking sounds sweet and of eternal value. Sounds like a better way. No. Consider the ways of the treasures of this world. Consider the demands they make and the wages that they pay. And then consider the way of the treasure of heaven. Isaiah 55.1 captures the way of the treasures of heaven most clearly. Listen. This is the way of the kingdom. This is what it is to stand under the waterfall of grace. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now you tell me that Jesus isn't trying to whet your appetite for a a truly glorious treasure. And the master says, come, poor in spirit, buy and eat. You cannot serve God and money. We must recognize that money or the treasure of this world is more than an alternative worldview. It's literally, and I think it's being held up in this passage, the reason he says it the way that he does, and he uses a peculiar word when he says it. You cannot serve God and mammon is literally the word, the, the, the way of the world's possessions. You cannot serve God and mammon because it's not an alternative worldview. It's not an alternative way. It's an alternative God. That's what he's holding out. It's a personification of worldliness. The question is not, how do you use your checkbook? It's a question of, who is your God? One commentator says it this way, one cannot flirt with money or mammon as if it has nothing to do with the inner person. Our view of money is not morally neutral. It's a revelation of our devotion, our love, our worship. I hope this morning one of the things that has happened is that you and I have been diagnosed. That we've had a bit of a vision check. Is there light in our eyes? Is there darkness in our spirit? Do we see rightly the view of the master? Mark eight thirty six. it says this. In Jesus' teaching there, he says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. In Mark, Jesus had gathered a crowd around himself to teach them. And this is just after he had told his disciples that he would suffer and be rejected, that he would die and be resurrected, all for the sake of their salvation. The very foundation of the good news is that Jesus' I did not treasure the things of this world, but for the glory of the Father and the joy of heaven, he stored up the treasure of the church. This is in the inheritance of the Son, the church. That is his treasure. That is what he has stored up 
for the glory of the Father. He's literally gathered out from among the world a people for himself for all of eternity. The world will pass away, but his church, his church, no moth, no rust, no thieves can take them out of the Father's hand. This is the treasure or the reward or the triumph of the King. May the self-sacrifice this morning and the generosity of our Savior for the forgiveness of our sin and the salvation of our eternal souls serve as not only an eye diagnostic, but an eye corrective for us this morning. May we not begrudge our master his generosity by treasuring the things of this world. But this morning, may we hear, every one of us, a call to repentance and a call to faith. May we see and savor reality for what it is. May the light of Jesus shine in us. And may we hold loosely the things of this world that others, too, may come and see and savor a Savior and King. May we join him in treasuring up the church, in disciple-making and generosity, that our brothers would not be poor, but they may be rich in faith. May we leverage the treasures of this world for that eternal reality. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness that you just don't hold back. You don't hold punches. You don't say, yeah, it's okay to love money a little bit. I get it. The things of this world are awfully appealing. You're straightforward and you're honest. You must see with a clarity that we do not yet see with. Thank you. May we see by means of your word. I pray, particularly in the moment in which we live, that we would cease to try to see with our hearts, that we would be done with trying to Create for ourselves reality from within ourselves, what we would perceive in our own nature. But rather, we would begin to see with the sight of faith that our vision would be corrected, that we would see a kingdom and an eternal reality, put away the things of this world, be free now, free to be generous and to treasure up the things that are eternal. We pray that you would do this by your word and work among your church this morning. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.